This episode of All the President's Minutes is brought to you by Bella Catering. Bellacatering.com.au is where you can find Sydney's best catering company. And now they're doing home delivery. Um, check out what they've got. Get to it fast, Sydney. Victoria has already shut down, which is good. <laughs> they're acting like idiots down in Victoria, but we are no less idiots here in New South Wales. So, my dear friends and listeners and folks, you, of course, have come across folks who are not doing the right thing with COVID-19. You need to contact Bella Catering while you can. Get the people to your house now that you want to visit. Check their temperature before they get in the door. Make sure that they're hand sanitized. Feed them with some delicious Bella Catering food. Bellacatering.com.au. They are responsible for the show. This week, we must thank them. We must love Glenn and Maria and thank their team and everything they do. Now, let's get on to the show. Nobody step foot off this bus. What do we do for you? We're looking for one of your players. One of my players? It's Mash Williams, coach. There's a whole lot of witnesses saying he threw the first punch. Now, we got an aggravated assault complaint, and we are bringing him in for questioning. Telling me that you're going to blame one of my players for what happened down that field tonight? This is police business, coach. This ain't got nothing to do about football. Now, you go on there and get that boy right now, or we will go in there and drag him out ourselves. It's your call. Well, here's my call. You got a warrant, officer? Because if you don't got a warrant, we all know that you ain't going to get on this bus. I can go get a warrant. That's fine. We got all night. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to All the President's Minutes. I'm your host, Blake Howard. I'm really excited whenever I get to talk to anyone who's based in Washington, DC. I'm particularly excited to talk to anyone who's a reporter who's worked in and around the Washington Post, the hallowed halls of the Washington Post. And today, although on a completely separate beat, um, way more concerned with uh, sports than anything else is uh, my current guest. But I'm excited to talk to her nonetheless because she's an editor and one of the things that she talks about is like, I like making your writing better. Um, And I think that um, the whole ethos of this show and 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 what is so comforting and maybe why it's such a salve uh, when we watch this film is that people are working tirelessly, obsessive grinders to get a story right and they have editorial support and protection and people who are making them as writers better, making them better reporters and ultimately making some of the most, you know, uh, defining journalism of the 20th century. So it's my pleasure to talk to a former sports editor at Washington Post Express and SB Nation, Sarah Kelly. Welcome to All the President's Minutes. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Now, before we get started, I asked you to be on the show. Uh, You were in the middle of a whole bunch of things and one of your friends, fortunately, thanks to them, and I don't know who they are, but thanks, knew what we did at One Hit Minute Productions and were fans of the shows, or, or at least a fan of uh, one of our many things that we've done. Um, and you were kind of weirded out that an Australian on the other side of the world <laughs> does something so quintessentially American and Washingtonian. And I thought this, we, we were just talking about it off air, but I thought I would talk to you about it because then we can reveal like something now. We are in the 68th 
episode of this show. And I thought I, there's a little bit of secret history stuff that can come up at, at the almost halfway mark. Uh, yeah, I mean, I just, so special shout out, I guess, to Miles Klee. He works for Mel Magazine. And so I, yeah, Miles, right. He's doing something similar on Twitter for laughs about heat, I think, you know, and, and so he was like, yeah, Blake's where I got that idea from. (laughs) Um, and it's it's the only person I asked about it and it ended up being the exact right person (laughs) to be like, Hey, is this legit? Um, and it is. Uh, I, I like to download podcasts and then just never, ever listen to them. I've just got like a huge queue of podcasts, especially cause I don't commute anymore. Um, so I've been trying to tackle those, but, um, that was cool. And then, so obviously I did my research, you know, and I, I was listening to see like what, what this is and it was really thrown off with the, you know, Australian accent. And then, you know, did the research and realized you're in Australia, but, um, w- was not expecting that. Yes. Because all the president's men is, is such a quintessentially American movie it's it's so much part of the sort of you know the the myth or or the the building up of what the Washington Post is and what journalism is and it's such like a an intense thing for us here and then also I just thought Blake sounded like a very American name (laughs) probably it probably is I I I think my I I think my mom stole it from a young uh, man who was already a Blakey like in her extended friend group. And I think they got it from an American. So yes, it is, it is, it is probably the, the name is deceptive, but what's so funny, Sarah, and I haven't actually in talking to you this morning, I, I realize I haven't actually said this live is when I was conceiving of this show um, and people who've listened to things we've done on one hit minute productions, you know, I've, I've gone off and, done podcasts for other publications that aren't on this feed and done like little bits and bobs where you, you know, you're working for another publication. So it's not necessarily holistically our stuff, but it's a lot of our same team that come along the, on the fun rides. And I pitched this show to the Washington post and got knocked back. And it was one of the only places that I pitched it. Uh, and it's one of those things where I, I went off and I spoke to, uh, some, some producer friends, um, at the LA times and, 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 you know, and I'm like, there, you know, there's no real other American publication, you know, there's probably podcasting houses now that would be listening to this going, Oh, okay. Maybe that would have been something to be interested in in a probably more condensed form um, than the minute by minute. It's kind of a long commitment. it, it, It is. But I think when I was pitching it to the Washington post, I was like, this could be, you know, it's under your banner would be a really interesting way to do this because it would be, you know, probably a very could have taken a different turn as far as leaning into more like journalists themselves and journalist interviews that were there on the ground during Watergate and those portrayals and things like that. And under that banner, but I, I kind of was like, just like with anything, this is the beauty of podcasts is you kind of do, you know, your, your integrity and your ethics about like whether a topic is covered and doing it, is the only thing that is holding you back. Like I wouldn't, I never would have done it if there was another minute podcast or even like another great series, uh, Leon Nafak's slow burn series, just about Watergate is probably, you know, something that mm-hmm. I listened to and I loved, but it's such, it's so about the ephemera of all the things that are around Watergate rather than the, 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 the sort of quintessential stuff about the movie and it's, influences on pop culture and just as influences on American culture and the culture of journalism in general. Um, but still a terrific show. And I enjoyed talking to him on the show earlier on in the series, but, uh, yeah, it's just one of those, one of those things like ships in the night, 
we passed. Someone said a no. <laughs> uh, and if, and if any of those folks are, are listening, hello and welcome. And, uh, and, uh, you know, this, this totally could have been branded as a Washington Post minute, uh, minute by minute show if, uh, if that's what it was, but you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm here and I, I, it, nothing would have stopped me wanting to talk about this movie. Nothing. It, it is, it, it was cool to watch because I hadn't seen it before either. And I didn't realize that it was, had been done um, so close to it actually happening. Like, you know, I'm, I'm looking it up and I, in my head, I guess I thought it was done in like the eighties or the nineties. And so I see it's 1976 and, and how recent that is and how that must've been um, really interesting for those audiences and, and how, how well the people in the theater would have actually remembered all of this going down and how, I assume Woodward and Bernstein probably were still working at the post and how, how um, I guess I'd have to look that up, but probably. Um, and, and just like how fresh that was. I didn't, I didn't ever know that. I grew up believing that it was a hundred years ago, I guess. It still shocks me to this day. It's something that, you know, I think people might be getting sick of if they hear me on this episode is the proximity is everything for me. Um, because mm-hmm. you know, that, that old historical what is a primary and secondary source, you know, like, you know, obviously a primary source is the newspaper is the daily news every day, people being there on the ground Mm -hmm. looking at it. And the secondary source, you know, implies this sort of like this reflection, this point of, uh, you know, where you can actually look at everything and then condense it into something that's digestible because you're using all those primary sources to sort of have an opinion. And the thing that always strikes me though with this is, it is a real blurred line between what is a primary versus what is a secondary source because these guys are writing the book and Bob Woodward is meeting with a sort of dogged Robert Redford, begging him for the rights to the movie, saying the story needs to be told, like, uh, you know, using his sort of narrative wherewithal to be like, hey, if you're going to tell this as a story, it needs to be about you guys because everyone knows everything else about the story. They just don't know about you. They don't know about what you had to do to get the story. And that's really interesting. And then, they're producing it while the book is being produced and, you know, Nixon's out in 74, which is the culmination of the film, even though primarily, you know, sort of 72, 73 is the, the, the actual events that the film is portraying. And there it is, you know, it's being produced in 75, it's out 76. Um, so it's a really, really interesting, uh, it's a really interesting timeline for me always to think about like what that means. And like you said, if those guys are still in the offices, I imagine, you know, lots of pictures of Robert Redford are being cut out of different publications and put on Woodward's desk and, uh, and, <laughs> and you know, like his desk must've been mounting with cigarettes, you know, with, you know, after all of the cigarette jokes in the movie and, and just Dustin Hoffman, anything that Dustin Hoffman in the rest of his life has probably stuck to Carl Bernstein's desk or like, you know, left on his keyboard or left on his typewriter, you know, at the time. And um, yeah, I can imagine yeah, it's, it's just weird. It's just, it, there's no other way to describe it other than it. it's weird because it's very unusual. Yeah, it's, um, it's, it's unique. There are a few times that I want to say, um, I mean, like, so the post is set in also the 70s. So like most of the people who were around um, at that time, by the time the post is a more recent movie, yes. um, probably weren't in, in the newsroom. Um, there was the one with the Boston Globe where... Um, Spotlight. What is Thank you. Spotlight was kind of more along that line, I guess, where it was somewhat recent, but not quite as, as fresh as this, but it, you know, like some of those people still work there and most of them are still in the business Mm. one way or the other. Um, 
I forget where I was going with this point, honestly. But no, no um, I think I think what you got. <laughs> I think I can preempt is it's just that it's not usual to happen, especially, and it's good to like put the lens of a journalism film on it because with Spotlight, Spotlight, like the stories had broken and the sort of swelling public consciousness about all of the heinous acts that were sort of surrounded the Catholic Church and all of the, you know, all the ways that they were complicit in sort of hiding child abuse. Had, had had storms through the media, and even as far as oh, an absolutely harrowing, but just completely affecting documentary called Maya Maxima Culpa: Silence in the House of God, was produced by HBO. So there were starting to be these stories that were coming out that were taking the peripheral views of like, "Hey, this story's heinous. You know all the big tales, but there's actually even worse tales within the tales. There's many stories within the stories, and." You know, so um, when Spotlight came out, it was sort of the thing to do. It was like the, the, I mean, Tom McCarthy sort of makes that choice to go, actually, we're going to do exactly, we're going to take that all the president's men, the film ethos and dive into the Mm -hmm. actual morality of the reporters who uncovered this story to see why, because that's another big question. It's like it was happening for so long. Unlike unlike the, the all the president's men thing, which is that, yes, political malfeasance seems like <laughs> part of the job. Um, but, mm-hmm. but, but I think that for, for spotlight, it was like, well, what's how, how in this town was this happening for so long without it getting to the papers? A completely different thing. But to your point, it's oh, that's so long, like so long later, it's so long later. It's plenty. It's time. There's books written. There's, you know, it's career defining for, for a lot of things. It's, uh, there's other documentaries already made and it just doesn't, you know, and, and, and I just want to really qualify is this happens all the time or has happened all the time where a, a topic in the news or a story has been made into like TV or movie media or like lifetime movie stuff. But most of it's terrible. And none of it really carries the same weight of the prestige of all of these actors or producers. It just doesn't, it doesn't seem to resonate on that, on that same level. So I just discovered actually an interesting connection between the two movies that I didn't realize. Um, Well, between the whole thing anyway, is that Marty Baron was a new editor in 2001 at the Boston Globe when all of this stuff was going on with Spotlight and they had the Spotlight team and they'd started doing these investigations. Marty Baron is now the executive editor of the Washington Post. Wow. Um, and so that's, that's fascinating. I didn't know that. Um, I mean, <laughs> I knew he was executive editor of the Washington Post, but that's kind of all I knew. Um, <laughs> uh, so it's interesting to see some of these people have absolutely built careers on stuff that, you know, ended up being interesting enough uh, to make a movie. But I, I just remember Spotlight being praised for the accuracy of, you know, Rachel McAdams wearing some like old Navy khakis and <laughs> kind of that look of, you know, like these are not even, you know, in large markets, they're not super well compensated people. And, um, you know, certainly not, uh, not usually as, as glamorous looking as a lot of the depictions of journalists you'll see. So I think it's really cool 
Um, in but don't carry from Sex in the City is what you're saying, right? You you know you don't write right. Carrie oh. Carrie writes once a week and can somehow afford a lot of very expensive shoes and her own place in New York. And yeah, it doesn't make any sense. And she's not a very good writer either. So <laughs> it, it, we we never understood how that how any of that worked, but. Um, yeah, especially just the, the way that Rachel McAdams looks in this movie, she really looks like she might work for it. You know, like, I mean, you know, Boston Globe is not a nobody job. Like, that's a that's a significant market and a significant yeah. role. But, you know, that it's still just like, it's still just a job and it's still just somebody, you know, dressing like a regular person and not like a movie star. Uh, I, I don't know how true this is, but I love to talk about it. I, I've never, I love to talk about it when it's brought up in conversation. So I'll talk to you about it now. It's, at the time, Sex and the City, obviously an insanely popular show, really popular. But one of the, the great funding tricks of that show is that a lot of designers would pay to have the girls, especially Carrie, wear their stuff. So Sarah just mm. Carrie wear their stuff. So HBO are making, you know, Sopranos is expensive, but there's no product placement in the Sopranos. And, Not really. And one of their other massive shows at that time, which then died a very, you know, a, a very unglamorous death at the end of season three with many seasons to go is Deadwood before it came back with the eventual movie that kind of wrapped it up. And one of the things was Deadwood wasn't making money like sex in the city because they couldn't have product placement. It's not like calamity Jane can wear Manolo Blahniks like um, right. through the muck <laughs> of Deadwood town. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those shows that uh, I think is probably the greatest fusion of uh, product placement maybe ever since like a Michael Bay Transformers movie. There's probably nothing that has ever come close to like Transformers movie. It, it's so seamless. I never even thought about it. Like, of course it was paid placement but like I that's how I like I didn't know what Manolo, uh, yeah Manolo Blahnik was until Sex in the City I also was probably not old enough to know or care before then but all, I mean you know half the designer names that I knew at that time definitely came from there and it never occurred to me that these would be product placements <laughs> that's how that's how seamless it was I'm like this is like blowing my mind because of course that's the case and I had never considered it before the the, the most cost efficient and I you know a topic for another podcast, a topic for another time, but possibly the most cost efficient show ever made big stars, a hell of a lot of product placement. And like that product placement was probably, probably eight into like 80% of the production budget. <laughs> they probably put, no wonder the show could go for years and make two movies because everything was just bought and paid for um, straight off yeah. the bat. So this movie is part of the fabric of American identity because of how important the entire Watergate situation was to American identity in the seventies. It was a sort of, you know, American exceptionalism and, and American triumphalism is another word to, to, to talk about comes out of world war two and, you know, the Americans role in changing the, I guess, changing the face of the world by sort of injecting itself into world war two come 42 and, you know, liberating mm -hmm. Europe, et cetera. So you come out of that and it's a huge time of prosperity for white America. And in fifties, it's it, all around the world. It's unparalleled peace and prosperity, especially in the Western world. Suburbia is created the concept of a teenager and we sort of get, we roll into the 60s and some of the, the discontent, you know, there's this beautiful facade that happens at the end of World War II where everyone's just like, can we just not have death and 
you know, people, uh, people being depressed and, uh, and, and dying. Can we just try and have prosperity and peace and calmness and sort of this turbulent role into the sixties and then into the early seventies with civil rights. And then there starts to be all of these simmering undercurrents, these things that have kind of been squashed down and covered up by this facade of like post-World War II glow, all sort of burst forth with the civil rights movement and burst forth with the political upheaval um, and assassinations and, and all those sorts of things that are happening in States at the time. And then you get to this moment where the sort of, I guess you'd say like the inferred corruption of everything that had been going on in the United States at that time, then explodes with Watergate that the actual president of the United States, Richard Nixon and his gaggle of cronies uh, are practicing political espionage on a scale that has never been revealed before. Uh, and, and that was a turning point in American society because it was like, we are going to hold truth to power and hold account to people in uh, positions of power in a way that we've never done before. And we're going to use the fourth estate to do that. It's, um, it's, it's, it is absolutely that. Can I talk to you a little bit about, does that, or in your experience as a journalist, does that, that purpose, does it still ring true? Does it still ring it, it true? rings true really with me? So I, I've known I wanted to be a journalist since I was 12. <laughs> um, when yeah. I was 12, I just, I was a very serious child. Um, <laughs> I, I decided that I, I wanted to be a journalist um, because I wanted to tell the truth is, is kind of the line that I'd used for a long time. Um, and I was very moved by things like holding, you know, powerful people accountable and and uh, you know, like comforting like, the afflicted and afflicting the comfortable. I took that very seriously. Please tell um, me there's a school paper story where you're holding a principal to account or something. I want to hear about young Sarah Kelly, the, the tireless journalist. Uh, there, there were some fascinating things in in high school journalism because Kansas is one of very few states that has, um, I believe it's called an anti-Hazelwood law, which essentially means that high schools are not allowed to tell us what our student press can print. In most U.S. states, the high school can say this is not appropriate and cut it out if they want to. Um, in Kansas cool. and a few other states, they've said, no, that's, that's not cool. And um, essentially have like a, a counterbalance basically to the Hazelwood case that says, um, no, they can, the Kansas Student Press Act, I think is what it's called, something like that. So our journalism teacher, every time that some of the other teachers or she can email about this is not an appropriate thing to put in it you know, a student newspaper, she would just, you know, mail them a, a copy of, of the law that said in Kansas, like, there's, they're not allowed to tell you, you can't print that. So we, we ran some pretty racy things, even for a college town, you know, fairly liberal, fairly, you know, easy to get a lot of things through. Um, but there had been a couple of jokes I remember we got in trouble for. We had like a comedy calendar thing and made some, I guess, some joke about Mardi Gras and Catholics have confession for a reason. And then <laughs> honestly, I'm not kidding. Might have been a joke about like a hooker named Steve or something, which I'm not like, I didn't write that. And also I'm not super proud of it. It's kind of homophobic now, but, but at the time, anyway, we got kind of a little bit in trouble with it. And we realized at that time that our head principal's name was Steve. Oh my God. And that, that was an awful, like, yeah. So it, somebody on the school board didn't like that comment. And actually they were probably right to not like it, but it became a whole thing because as much as that, like fairly isn't, isn't really appropriate, honestly. Um, there, the school did not have a right to tell us we couldn't print that. Um, there had been a lot more righteous examples of that in the state where, you know, people wanted to talk about 
maybe teen pregnancy or something like that. And they thought it would make the school look bad, things like that. Yeah. Um, we used it mostly to make stupid jokes um, was how we wielded that power. <laughs> um, but, you know, even from that, I took it, it very seriously, like that it was my job to make sure that the administration was doing what it said it was. Um, and that, you know, we should be looking at where the money goes and we should be looking at, you know, what powerful people are doing because, I mean, that's part of their jobs, you know. So I've always felt really strongly about that, um, even in sports and even after having a, a pretty intense and weird and not entirely successful career in journalism. That's still very important to me. Other people, I think, get into it more because they like to write. And sometimes you can kind of see the difference in people who wanted to write and became journalists and people who wanted to be journalists and maybe learned how to write. Yeah. And that, it, it's kind of too, it, and most of the time we can get along and, and we're good for each other, but there's kind of two slightly different orientations within any newsroom. That's a really interesting, that's a really interesting thing is that impulse for truth telling and then just being a great writer. So your, your door is opened. And also, I, I don't think you should diminish what sports is. Sports is great because it's like, it's like a sandbox to play in, but there's all the same political, like, you know, weird political things, cities being tied to money and how that works mm -hmm. and owners and all of their own weird politics and how that plays out, <laughs> you know, especially like the hypocrisy of the NFL, for example. It's, oh, tons of it. It's, it's like, full it, of, of really interesting well, labor issues constantly. And then, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of interesting kind of reflections of what's going on in society and the way that we treat, you know, racism, I guess would be the best example right now. And and everything that's changed since Colin Kaepernick was, you know, basically expelled from the NFL for kneeling. And now that's what everyone's doing. And, and um, that's, that's the kind of sports stuff I really like to do is to be like, this is important. And this is, this is a reflection of us. And this is sometimes how we move. And this is, um, I love sports because it's like the safest, most like low risk way to feel intense emotions. And, and that plays out really well when a lot of other things are going on in our society like they are right now. And it's also why people get affected by sports. So much, mm -hmm. you can love something so much and you can be so disappointed. Like there's a purity of the actual game, like watching people compete against one another and having sort of a, we hope mostly level. Um, if you watch, you know, the documentary Icarus on an Olympic sports level, you learn that no one is on the level playing field um, when you're in Olympic right. sports. Um, but, you know, we, we hope that most people are on that level playing field and they're competing against one another. And it's literally about skill and will and the combination of those things. But also, you know, speaking in Australia, because we're not, we're not without our own sporting scandals and drug scandals and whatever, it's like you can have a great team performing it's wonderful you, you know they're everything to you and then your team breaches the salary cap and then they get stripped of their title and you're like there's nothing more heartbreaking for like a diehard sports fan to have watched and clawed for all these years to watch their team be successful and then get embroiled in a controversy and it's like oh my god like just we just want to watch the game and so i think that that's a it's a yeah it's a really it's a really interesting one and also you know, one of my favorite, you talk about this being a quintessential text. One of my other favorite sort of quintessential, uh, quintessential sort of American texts, obviously you've got things like the wire, which is incredible. Um, and, but I, I really love the TV show Friday night lights because in Australia, we don't mm. necessarily have a, um, 
a sort of high school sporting culture. Like definitely kids are playing sports by then, but a lot of it is like fed into local sporting clubs and divisions and things like that. So by the time you kind of, I want to say about 14 or 15 years old, you're playing in juniors for rugby league or rugby union clubs around the your local areas and they then feed into what eventually become our professional teams and so there's these little feeder clubs and you play and then you know you sort of rise to the top there's not like formalized draft or like high school to college to to to, to the nfl for example so when i look at something like friday night lights and sport like that's the whole it's a portrait of america through a town um you know talking about labor, it's talking about teachers, it's talking about students, it's talking about like pathways out of poverty. It's, 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 it's got all the stories. I, I am actually really excited you said that. I don't know if I told you this, but my first job out of college was as a sports copy editor in um, a relatively kind of small town in Texas. Um, so you didn't yes, tell me this. So that, right. Well, it didn't, it, I, it didn't <laughs> seem relevant. It's actually apparently very relevant. Um, you know, and so that, that culture is very much there. I was in Bryan College Station, Texas. So we're looking at, I think maybe Bryan was maybe around 100,000 and College Station is kind of a twin city there that's got Texas A&M and is maybe, I don't know, 150,000. So not, not as small as Dillon, although Dillon is also as big or as small as it needs to be, um, <laughs> which I thought was interesting. It's also as far west or as far, um, far east. as it needs to be. I always thought, because um, Texas is enormous, right? <laughs> um, and so the original Friday Night Lights is based on a team from Odessa Permian that's very far out west. Yes. Way, 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 way into western, like west Texas. And yet in like season, maybe is it two or three, they're making all these like very frequent trips to Austin, which would be like eight hours away. <laughs> and wow. it, the Texan definition of a long drive is, you know, probably four to five, six hours. Like they drive a lot. It's a huge state and there's not a lot of public transit, but um, I, 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 yeah, like suddenly it's like no longer because they filmed, of course, they filmed this, the, the series, um, I think it was in Pflugerville, like just outside of Austin, which is in central Texas. Yes. So, um, that's a, that's so a, suddenly Austin is very much on the character's <laughs> mind, even though it's eight hours away. It's not like nobody ever took a college visit to Austin from West Texas, but they make a lot of like real quick trips. And I, I guess I'd have to look it up. It's a very, very long drive because <laughs> Austin is almost dead center in the state and, and Odessa or vaguely like West Texas would be many hours away. So, I always thought that was interesting, but yeah, that culture is not totally exaggerated. Um, and it, it was not as intense where I was as it could be in other places, but it was still pretty intense. Um, they, they shut everything down. You can buy season tickets to the high school, which is not even a thing that they had even in Kansas, uh, where I grew up. Um, it, it really, um, it, it's cool. I also um, was married to a high school football coach for five years. So, wow. um, so I've actually like experienced that Tammy Taylor life up close as well. Um, and it's really cool and fascinating the way that these communities come around it. Um, and especially you if you're not accustomed you need a, to the t-shirt that says that Tammy Taylor life with a silhouette. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you need that right now. Stat. That must it's be a insane. grind. I was going to say it's insane. Like, uh, there's another terrific, um, the terrific Netflix hockey series called last chance you, which bounces around obviously. Yes on the peripherals of college football and like you watch these the the coaches just in general have like a standard 18 hour day and this is just like a mm -hmm. quarterback coach and then you've got these grinding partners wives and mothers and whatever it is 
just going, Hey, I'll see you when you come home to sleep for three minutes. And I have to move the house. Like if we move next week, like they pack the house. Right, then that would be on me. Yeah. Yeah. You've got everything to do and they've got the team. It's, it's a, it's an insane commitment. Like a a real old school, really old school and feels like, you know, past generational commitment to that kind of concept of home and, and, and work. It's, it's, there's, it was, old- yeah. And it was very much a challenge as someone who was, you know, I was also working full time and, yeah. and, you know, was also feminist and trying to have this feminist marriage life, you know, <laughs> and, uh, the schedule didn't really allow for it to, at least during the season be equal. He was like, he was a freshman head coach, which meant that he also was an assistant for the high school level. And in, in us, usually, um, high school coaches are also teachers, full-time teachers typically. Yes. Um, so he, he would leave the house by probably 7 a.m. And five to four days a week, he would have practice and he'd get home around, I don't know, like 8 p.m. And then he'd have, uh, I guess he'd have a game, usually Friday night, the high school game. And then he'd have the freshman game also, um, you know, another night, I guess. And so the, he could come home anywhere from 9 to more like 11. Friday nights, I would be at that the, the game with the other um the other football wives living like that life uh, um and being Australia, there and knowing Australia, all the kids and in Australia they call it the wags the wives and yes, girlfriends yes exactly wives and girl- right yes so we had a special little area where we would sit wives and girlfriends and the children and everything and then we'd go back to the head coach's house after the game but some of those especially the away games they would come back you know very late after midnight occasionally um and then Saturday he spent all day watching film so he was home um, but he was on, uh, on his iPad breaking down film for, you know, five, six hours that day at least. And then Sunday they had meetings at the head coach's house. So he would, he'd be gone another couple of hours on Sunday and then it would start all over again. So it was my job to take care of the dog and the food and clean as much as I could clean and, you know, handle whatever I could and, for and, the and entirety, basically like three or four months. God. And it, it evened out the rest of the year. Like my, my ex-husband's not like a, like a bad person or anything, but like that was what was required of him. And he was, this is pretty low level. You know, this, he was an assistant coach at a big school in Kansas, which isn't like a super intense football state. Um, so, you know, like in Texas, actually the head coaches stopped being teachers at that point. Oh yeah. Yeah. And he was teaching in the middle of the day too. Like he was teaching special ed um, or social studies, depending on which year. Um, and so, you know, still have to do all of that. That's still its own job, you That's know, at all of the lesson planning and all of the job. being in the classroom. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. He had a whole football, he had a full time job that was not football. <laughs> and then the football also was about more or less a football, a, a full time job for, you know, a lot less money than it probably should be worth for the kind of hours you put in. Um, and he'd always say, I'd do it for free if I had to. Um, so, <laughs> and, and he's doing great and he just got promoted or whatever at a different school. And so, um, but that's, that's what it takes. And that's not even super high level. Like th- they had a really good year that year and, and made it pretty far in playoffs, but didn't make it to state. And it, yeah, it, it was like a fraction of what you would see Friday night lights, but, but all of those elements are real, the way that a community comes around it. Um, the, the, the kind of time and, uh, so much of your life that you sacrifice to it as a player, as a coach, as a parent, as literally someone who's just married to someone who works there, um, it is uh, pretty well represented actually in Friday Night Lights. And I think that's a really 
they kind of nailed Texas in, in my opinion, as much as, as King of the Hill did, which is the other like quintessential <laughs> Texas that, that, absolutely nailed it. It's uh, complete, like hundred percent accurate. Every, every single state in the States and, and every country in the world needs those defining texts. And, uh, and I think one of, I think, right. I think if you're two defining texts, the King of the Hill on Friday night lights, you're not doing anything wrong. You're, you're doing all right. the, you're doing everything right. Oh, that's so great. But no, like it's I, when I'm, when I'm hearing you talk about it, when I'm hearing about the grind, I'm just like, that is like, that's day to day. That's day to day American culture playing out in the world. When do you, you know, all, all of yeah. the manifestations of like politics and town politics and, and all those sorts of things and people's egos who are contributing to the school and helping with sponsorships and the whole way that these towns operate. It's like, you've got these little microcosms of economies and star players and all those sorts of things. It's and just the grind that, that grind, like that's a, you know, I can't even imagine what, what that's like to have kids too. Kids is another layer right. of demands on top of Several that. Several of the coaches had two, three kids and they were just always in tow. I remember very distinctly um, the football facility was shared with several schools in the same district. And so every now and then there'd be a Thursday night game for the varsity instead of a Friday night. Yes. And so the little kids would come. I think one of the, the, the head coach's youngest was probably three or four, maybe. Um, and yeah, there were some like little like preschool and kindergarten, first grade yeah, age. Until nine, nine o'clock at night. <laughs> Later, like sometimes closer to 10. Yeah. And, and of course, then they're cranky because normally game, game nights mean they get to go over to their, you know, their friend's house, the head coach's house. Yes. And have like we hang out, and then they all hang out with the cool toys that the coach has, and and it's great. And they stay up super late Friday nights. Like they're up until probably ten thirty or eleven at minimum. They're probably up till midnight on Friday nights. These little kids. The oldest one I think was maybe ten at the time or something. And they're all little. And um, but Thursday nights, of course, they can't go over to their friend's house. Thursday nights, they're already up way past their bedtime, and then they have to go straight home and straight to bed which is not what I want to do as an I mean maybe what I wanted to do as an adult but you know kind of really not what they were hoping for and it only happens maybe two or three times in a in a season so they never really get used to that that change in in it and I just remember the grumpiest most tired <laughs> little kids uh, you know, I mean, it, there, there was one game where they the the team was losing badly and they could have put in um, a mercy rule, but the other team's coach decided not to because he just didn't want to. And then they kept, they kept, yeah, dragging it out. They kept um, running up the score. They kept, well, they kept running the ball, and so it would take forever and ever and ever. And <laughs> it, we're like, it's Thursday. All these kids have to be in class at like seven forty-five in the morning. Um, you know, and they, they still have to go home, and they have they haven't done their homework yet, and all of this kind of stuff. And it w really became a lifestyle. And my, my secret was to never stop moving. I would just, you know, get as much done as I could before, um, before work. And then I had one of those jobs where I didn't really do anything. So I just like killed <laughs> eight hours that day doing marketing, about, whatever that is. I was just about to ask you, like when you're in that town and you start off in a paper, like, you, you know, or, or you're doing any kind of reporting and sports reporting is, is, like, does that change your relationship to it? Because you're asking questions as a, as a sports journalist about the town and about the coaches and doing the write-ups. Like, did you ever have any of that pressure come back on you? Well, you know, I, it would. I actually was not working in journalism at oh, the time because right. of we had 
basically there were no journalism jobs. This was in Wichita, Kansas. Um, there's one newspaper there and they just weren't hiring. So I did random marketing. You know things. that, you know, just really quickly that we've come, we've brought it all the way back around where, where he's like, where, where Woodward gets called out that he's from Wichita, Kansas. And he's like, I'm from, I'm Oh, not, that's right. I'm yes. not from Wichita, Kansas. I'm from Illinois, but all the way from Wichita, Kansas. They didn't have any journalism jobs. So you're just doing like a marketing job during the day, like making ends. Yeah. Just at like a bank or something. Yeah. Just like some job. Um, and, and it really was a lot of it is um, one of the, the tensions. I don't want to like throw all my garbage out there, but one of the tensions in this marriage is that football coaching is one of those jobs where you relocate to follow the job. hundred um, percent. Often to maybe smaller towns where you can have a bigger role kind of depends, but like, you know, you go where the football goes. Journalism is also one of those jobs where um, you go where the next job is, where the next beat is, where you could, you know, get a promotion or be in a bigger market or something like that. And so that was always a, a conflict <laughs> in that marriage because it was hard to make them both coexist. So I wasn't working in news at the time. I know um, at the time there was a, a longtime sports writer, um, Joanna Chadwick, uh, who was married to one of the high school basketball coaches. And so they, um, she, a few years ago, ended up becoming a teacher, but for a long time had that tension where, um, you know, it was great because she knew what was going on and she knew all the kids, but, uh, you know, if there was ever any, any um, kind of difficulty that uh, I would love to know exactly how she handled that because she did it for probably 10, 15 years being married to one of the coaches that I, I don't know if she covered that team directly, but she covered all the other teams in the district and in the area. That's the... I mean, with such limited face time that you're probably already getting with your partner, that's another wrinkle that you really don't need in your life. Do you, do you really need that? You wrote this yeah. that I don't like. <laughs> do you really need that? Probably not. You don't want, or certainly you don't want it. Uh, that That's and definitely part of it. Definitely. There's that potential conflict. And I, I, if I remember that particular reporter was known for being very player friendly, like her, her reporting was very much about, um, the kids, because it's high school level, you know, so yeah. it was very much about highlighting the kids. And that might be part of why she was oriented that way is yeah. that, you know, she, she was in that world and was very familiar with the grind and, and what that looks like for everyone. And, um, was like very much well known for, for being very character centered, very kid centered in her reporting, um, compared to someone who might go more storyline or go more, um, you know, X's and O's or something like that. Well, so I would, I never, I actually never got to meet her, but I would, I would love to listen to all of the things that <laughs> that she learned in, in that same market married to someone in the same district for, you know, a couple of decades. Well, let's get to the storyline of all the president's minutes. Let's go back to someone who's been accused of being in Wichita, Kansas, which is Bob Woodward. Let's check out, <laughs> right. the, let's check out the 68th minute of all the president's men because it's a low, it's jam packed. And I loved all of that. I just want to tell you, Sarah, I loved hearing about, I loved hearing about that time because it's such an interesting, fascinating little slice of Americana. And if this show is anything, it's a little slice of Americana and it's, we just got to have a vacation outside of uh, Washington DC, which we're usually so occupied in. Um, but it's, right. it's nice to come back. So let's come back together. Um, we'll hear about what it's like for you, what it was like for you to work in Washington, uh, Washington DC and, and be around the aura of these journalists or at least their, you know, their, the former hallowed halls of these guys. Um, and we'll come back and uh, talk about this moment in just a sec. Their names? We haven't revealed the sources. 
field of Tonkins. You know, I really can't talk about this because Are you I don't be members of the committee? Someone got to that woman. It's the key to the whole cover-up. How can you write that there's a cover-up? We don't know that there's a cover-up. Well, then I don't know what the hell you need. So you tell me what you need. I need more fact for a story is what I need, and I think you should need the same thing. Okay, if you get in a car, and a car, and, and there's in a car. All right, and there's music playing in a car, hypothetically. And there's yeah. music playing in the car for 10 minutes, and there's no commercial. What, what can you deduce from that? Is it AM oh, or FM? come on, Bernstein. Is it AM or FM? Oh, a guy can come up to me on a street, yeah. and he can ask me an address. Now, is the man interrogating me, or is he lost? What, what kind of a story do I write from? What kind of a deduction do I make from that? Well, you could, because you don't have a gut feeling that, that the woman is trying to help no, us? No, I don't have enough gut feeling. I wish I did. We're uh, from the Washington Post. A lot happens. And after all of the charm of like the first Betty Millen interaction where they're sort of very passively asking her questions and then they go back, it's kind of a heart wrenching beginning to the minute. You know, they, they, they're kind of pushing this person. They're trying to get any semblance of information they can get, just any sort of morsel. And it's sort of heartbreaking. And then there's this great talking shop, which I can't wait to talk to you about as an editor of like, what did Right, yes. What so much of it comes together. <laughs> what deduction would you like me to like me to make if if this person is saying he's acting completely differently in two interactions what kind of deduction would i make what do you need to be telling a story i'd love to hear you talk a little bit about that 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 back and forth between these guys yeah that that's what i kind of was excited about when i saw everything that 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 particular clip involved because it's really it's that process they're kind of self-editing at this point um trying to determine like do we have enough information to make this a story, which means like, is this interesting, but also can we sort of prove it or do we have evidence? Um, and that's a lot of what editing is day to day, especially editing, you know, a section um, yeah. or being kind of an assigning editor like that is, is um, your news judgment is what you do every day. You decide what people should and shouldn't know. And you decide if you have enough information to share it with people. There's a lot of I guess, gatekeeping there um, that not everybody in the public realizes. Like as much as we make decisions about what to cover, that means we're also making decisions about what not to cover and what, you know, and when, when to release the information that we have. Yeah, um, because, so because that's, like, that's what editing really is. Yeah, that, that foundational sort of quandary of the way that this person is interacting with me is so drastically different and they show so much fear that, there is a moral responsibility to go when writing this, do we say that they were interfered with? Because obviously I didn't see it. Mm-hmm. And yeah. It feels, yeah. And, and it feels so relevant and prescient now of like, who is making that judgment call? Because I know, I know about you. It's like a lot of emerging, you know, publications and you see like online digital publications or whatever, or like they're millennial skewed, whatever, whatever, bullshit jargon that people ended up saying with these used newspapers and stuff. And it feels like people are way more uh, inclined to make a, to make that kind of claim that it feels like the way that they interacted with someone would do that rather than going and having this moment of like, should I do this? In some ways that can be true, especially for, um, you know, some of your quick hits, 
some of the, you know, where getting it first is the most important. I think that's maybe the most interesting tension in the movie is there's, you know, always a chance that somebody else could pick up on this first. Yes. Um, and, and so that's always what's kind of guiding these discussions is do we have enough, but also if we wait to get more, is somebody else going to publish with less or, yeah. or are they going to get what we're looking for first? Um, and so that's kind of always in the back of your mind when you're trying to decide if this is a story is also, does anyone else think it's a story? Um, so that's definitely um, something that comes up a lot. Um, I'm not really sure if I can say that at least at more traditional outlets that the standard for what isn't isn't news has changed too much as far as like you know like real stuff that would be news if we could prove it kind of stuff like yes. um like watergate not like things like you know is this story about what somebody said on twitter news that's kind of a different question <laughs> but as far as like we've been investigating do we have enough um that, that kind of has stayed the same at least for for the traditional outlets and and you have a lot of other noise from um newer all digital outlets that have sometimes different standards or you know they have the freedom also of course to update things as they come which is not uh something you could do in, in 1970 whatever no. uh in print no um that that also drives things very differently the print deadlines and the and the nature of print where you can run a follow-up story if you need to you can run run a, a correction but it's not the same as being able to go online and go ahead and change it or update it with whatever you found after you published it Yes, and, um, and be able to sort of update people on that. So there's a lot of finality too, that we don't necessarily have to deal with as much as, as modern journalists and deciding like, is it time to, to hit go or not? Yeah. It's, it's, it's also the, the way that they're putting it. I like so much. It's like if a guy comes up to you and asks directions in the street, just something about the turn of phrase and something you just about the whole word picture. If someone comes and asks you mm-hmm. for where an address is in the street, is he interrogating you? Like, it, I just love that. That is like a, a great one because it's like, that would net, like it would ne- it totally is possible. It would never occur to me. You know, I walk my dog, I go for a walk with my kids and there's plenty of time where like, I think when you have a dog and especially small kids and people like see you walking in the street, they don't know where they are. They're like, this person must know where they are. Like, <laughs> so you walk along and like, uh, where is this place? And it happens quite a bit. And so I just love that idea of there's never been a second thought except when I watch this movie of like someone's interrogating me for a location. I'm usually, yeah, right. I'm usually just like, I'm walking straight past them. I'm never, I'm never moving. I'm never doing any of that. So it's just this really interesting thing that I always find when I watch this scene and I'm looking at this moment, but, but I also love the juxtaposition of there's such a great stack of filmmaking. These guys are ultimately shrouded in shadow, particularly Woodward at the beginning of the scene is sort of shrouded in shadow. They keep the, the, they're staging themselves the same way they did the previous, uh, the, the previous interaction. Hoffman's Bernstein is sort of the one who's actually bathed in the light. It's the soft light, warm hearth light coming from the inside of a house. Um, the way she's gripping onto the door, it's, it's, you know, the door is like holding her up in this moment and she's sort of, she's like lilting like a, like, you know, spinach in hot water basically against this door mm-hmm. and it ends up shutting it. And the, the power of this scene, the mood of the scene and the, the sort of, you know, delicate David Shire score that sort of like really sort of swaying your emotion in it is this person is under pressure. It's, it's, it's t- tickling all those paranoia muscles. It's t- but, but in this car 
and it's the great technique of this movie is that it, it really, it gives you a break. It gives you a feeling, it validates something. And then it makes you actually question all of the manipulation. And I think that the, that's one thing I'm relishing about this scene with you watching it and talking about it is that offset. Like those first the opening moments, you are purely buying into the paranoia. People got to this person. There's no way that she would be acting like this if someone didn't get to her. It validates all of those slam doors. But then they get in the car and they're like, but did we really see that? Like, are we just, are we just crazy? Like, are we just tired? We've been on the road for so long. Are we just making this up in our head? And I think that that, check yourself constantly in this movie is just why you're satisfied with it. It's so excellent. It is, especially I think from a journalist perspective, because these are some of the questions we're supposed to be asking. Um, I, I think it really plays into kind of what our more um, modern conversation is about like, what is objective um, and what is, you know, what point of view are we writing from? Because, yes, you know, it used to be Woodward and Bernstein, like two white guys were writing everything and that, <laughs> that became the default point of view. And so we've, we've definitely had um, a lot of conflicts when uh, reporters and editors from different walks of life. Oh, Sarah, you've hit mute. How did I do that? Can you hear me? I got you. I don't know what happened there. I'm sorry. <laughs> reporters are from different walks of life. Right, right. And so that's been uh, especially an ongoing thing in for uh, several years, but also very much in the last few months um, with Black Lives Matter and things like that. Like the question, uh, you know, are, are black reporters inherently biased when they're covering these protests and should they be pulled off these stories? And most of us now are saying, well, no, of course not. And 20 years ago, some of us and by some of us, I really just mean white people might have said, well, yeah, I mean, how can they not be biased? Because they would have a, a point of view. And so there's there's a lot of modern talk now of, of, first, that objectivity is a myth and that pretending you don't have an opinion doesn't mean that you don't have it and doesn't mean that it can't affect your reporting. Yes. Um, and, and two, that, that our uh, default is not a true neutral at all, that it's a very specific point of view. Um, and that it, it's my opinion that you either, in all things, you either want change or you want things to stay the same. Yes. And either one of those is an opinion. Either one of those is necessarily political. Like you either want the status quo or you don't. Like you have to choose. <laughs> yes. You know, even if your choice is to do nothing, that's a choice. Um, yeah. So that has been a conversation in journalism that I've been watching really closely. It, and even, you know, we're recording this, so folks are going to probably hear it pretty quickly, only a couple of days after we actually record this. But, you know, there was a big story that broke that Barry Weiss, um, who is or, or, who was a New York Times opinion editor um, uh, and uh, recently gained a little bit more notoriety for signing the cancel, cancel culture Harper's letter uh, that went out mm -hmm. there with a whole bunch of other individuals, um, ha has now resigned from the New York Times from bullying and things like that. And it's just like that, that that to me is an un, is sort of a manifestation in the current news climate of exactly what you're talking about, which is that someone has a, someone's political opinion is there and it's right out on front street. And for whatever reason, whether it, whether it is legitimately bullying or whatever it's, it's, or it's, it's coloring the way that that person reports it's, we're trying to hold some journalists to an account of like a flat, a flat political agenda, like a flat neutral, but it is a lie. 
Like it, it, the, the objectivity is in the way that you present facts versus what your personal opinion is about those facts. And I think we haven't quite gotten to that moment in the movie yet, but there's that great moment where Woodward's like, I'm a Republican and Bernstein nearly falls off his chair. Um, uh, which, which is, that's a great moment. Like I almost fell out of my chair. I was like, Oh, okay. I hadn't expected that. There aren't a lot of, of Republican journalists. They exist, but there's not, especially in print, there's not that many of them. Yeah. Um, it, it's, <laughs> it's a great moment. Maybe there was a lot more of them then in the seventies, many more in the seventies. Maybe the scales have tipped almost completely to the other way, but then it's, it's then interesting to talk then about, you know, if there's not a lot of Republican journalists and there's not people that are willing to have the debate, then you go, well, that's why a Fox news exists because there might be legitimate Republican journalists out there. And then it's like, no, then, you know, then, then who are we, who are we playing to? Who's this evil propaganda machine really playing to then? Like, what are we actually doing? It's also a lot more stressful as the Republican you know, agenda and the Republican platform becomes very divided from what I would describe as the mainstream in a lot of their views where, you know, and people who are supportive of Black Lives Matter and things like that will say like the Republican agenda right now is arguing against the humanity of Black people and of, of, of gay people and of people, you know, various, a whole list of marginalized people. And that is to me, and I think to a lot of people, a whole lot harder than what it might have been when it was just a disagreement about it, exactly how we should, you know, use our tax money or something like that. <laughs> um, and that's kind of an oversimplification of the past because, you know, the, it was like that because of systemic exclusion of huge groups of people. And that's, that's why we didn't have to have those discussions then is that we just cut those people out. But, you know, as the right moves so much further right, it's harder and harder for me to even feel like these are ideas that we should entertain. Like as we have an uncomfortable creep toward, you know, weird fascist tendencies in the White House, it's harder and harder for me to be like, well, let's listen to someone who's pro-fascist and someone who's anti-fascist and like see <laughs> where it falls. And so that's where I think a lot of journalists, especially maybe the ones that already kind of leaned a little bit left are really, um, I don't know if struggling is the right word, but like it's, it's really on our minds that like, how much you can legitimize these when, when um, the opposite, you know, the, the party in power is got some pretty weird ideas that maybe we shouldn't give too much credence to. But it's also the leader, you know, the, the extremity is towards the irrational. You know, it feels like there's no, there's no ability to have a rational conversation because the, the implication is that, you know, go as far back as you want on both sides of political political discussion it feels like people were ready to have rational conversations people were ready to say to, to say what they believe without sort of screeching it or tweeting it or whatever the case may be and i feel like i feel like i could go back and read every nixon conversation in privately in the white house and you know i think someone on the show talked about it like reading like a david mamet script so i could totally do that and i could watch nixon interviews and see him be a rational human being and I can't even read Trump tweets. I, like they're, they're just, it's just, <laughs> yeah. like it's insane. It, it, and, and the, and I, and I'm, I'm not a local. I, I'm not, I'm not as, I have the luxury of being in another country and I have to, you know, I have to divest my attention away to focus on the, 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 pol the politics of my own country um, to talk about it. And I sort of can, you know, balance that on a knife's edge 
between this show and then, you know, my own personal beliefs as a more progressive person just in general. But I feel like it's like, if you, if you have someone who's totally irrational um, and wants to just be a bully and not have an interaction with you, you can't have a dialogue with them. And like, so it's like, absolutely. even in interviews where Trump is being like lavished with praise, he's still, he's still a person who is waiting for you to stop speaking so he can speak versus someone who's actually listening to any word you're saying during anything that's happening. Right. Yeah, that's true. He's hundred percent, not even trying. He's not trying um, to you know what? I think it's a lot of this, these attacks from, from the right are coming in bad faith. And I think it's a mistake for either people on the left or people who are trying to be neutral to engage these bad faith um, arguments, these bad faith statements, yes. as if the, these are in good faith. Um, the most recent one, I guess, would be the one that stands out to me, at least this week, was um, <laughs> uh, Josh Hawley. He's a senator from Missouri. He, for whatever reason, sent out like a press release about how he feels about the NBA in China and comparing the NBA to uh, communist China and, I don't know, making some kind of a point about that, I guess. <laughs> Which is an interesting thing to do. Missouri does not have an NBA team. I don't believe they have even any like G League teams. Like it's neither here nor there. Missouri's coronavirus cases are rising. Kansas City has um, like extreme numbers of homicides right now. Like he's got other things he could be doing, but this is what he's doing. <laughs> uh, and so he's, he emailed um, this ESPN reporter, uh, Woj, and, and <laughs> apparently Woj just responded back with, fuck you. <laughs> I and almost everybody else in sports thinks that's hilarious. ESPN <laughs> thinks that maybe they need to suspend him because that's not civil or whatever. And and that's fine. ESPN can do what they want. But <laughs> you know, it really stood out to me as like this is not a good faith attempt to it's engage not, an ESPN just... writer on anything. The reason we know about it is because Josh Hawley tweeted out that like the screenshot to be like, oh well, ESPN reporters, they are not very nice to me. And, and you can see the news release, it's, it's a waste of everyone's time. I would say the same thing if someone sent this to my inbox. Like, this has nothing to do with anything. Nobody asked what you, like, your opinion. Josh Hawley is not a serious person. <laughs> I, I would just, I love your more massage version, though, Sarah, of like, this is not an opinion that anyone needs to hear. You are not, a, you're clearly, you are clearly not a serious person. Goodbye. Whereas that, just, that is what, to whereas, me, that's what editing like, is. That's you editing in a very nice, like, diplomatic way of going back. Whereas we're just like, fuck you. Like, that, his is like, right. with all of the, like, why am I even reading this? Why would I even waste my time? And yeah, look, that's, that's the other thing. It's like, you can have, <clears throat> there are many forums to have rational conversations when you're talking about like commonality of the human experience and things we can agree on and just starting from a point of like, this is where we actually want to agree and let's have a dialogue about it. And then there's a rationality completely. And then just insanity. Yes. And, and in this case also a lot of times it's, you know, contributing to people building up their own careers. Josh Hawley is trying to build his political career. He wants to run for president. He went to like Yale, I think, um, maybe Harvard and Yale, but he does that like regular folks, Missouri, like yeehaw kind of thing. Um, when there's nothing, reg he's like a millionaire. <laughs> it, it's very much like it's all a game for him to get his name out there, for him to, you know, tr basically piggyback on, on these Trump supporters, you know, and, and so he's leaned hard on politicizing, wearing a mask in public, things like that. That's not a serious person, and it's not someone you need to engage. No. And to me, that's like, like a very large form of editing where I got this thing in my inbox. I decided 
this is not worth my time. And I move on. That's editing <laughs> to me. It's deciding what, what gets your attention and what doesn't. And also the attention of the reader. What should yes. get your attention? And, and particularly like being cognizant of not doing other people's PR work for them. That's a very important part of, of editing is it's not my job to make in sports your team look good, which is sometimes controversial. Um, yes. It, you know, my job is to cover the team. It's, I don't work for the team except for sometimes when journalists do literally work for the team. Everybody else though, you know, it's very tricky because of access, but in general, I don't work for the team. It's not my job to make your team look good. It's not my job to make your candidate look good. It's not my job to make your business look good. You tell me the information, I'll tell people and we'll see what they think. And so that's another like really, I think key part of editing that um, it's is maybe a, my favorite. It's, it's a funny, it's just like, it's a funny dialogue that happens. This is the weird crossover. It happens in sports and it definitely happens in entertainment is people, that whole concept of if you like the movie, the company paid you off. You hated the movie. If you hated the movie, you're doing so because another company paid you off and <laughs> yes. it's okay with the movie. You're outside of the conversation and who cares because you didn't love it or hate it and um you right. know and and you know pr companies with like when it comes to movies and stuff like that will send you things all the time and you know as an editor of like a small blog like you know will you post this will you do this will you do this and i'm like no <laughs> just like yeah I'm not posting it, press i'm it, not i'm not posting a press release there's no content here like th this could you know some of the information could be a companion to an interview or a companion to a deep dive or a companion to something um, but is there something else? No, it's just the press release. Cool. No, I'm good. We're not going to need to post that. It'll pop up somewhere else. People aren't going to come to this publication for that. Thank you very much. See you later. And so it's one of those funny things and it happens with access and you know, there's a lot of international movie publications that have been scrutinized, just like sporting journalists have been scrutinized of like you're in the pocket of X and that's, you know, you got access to this big interview and therefore you're of course going to love it. You're of course going to love this thing or, you know, then the editors of those publications have to go, okay, I got to go ride a tank with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Maybe I can't review this movie. Maybe I get someone else to review the movie. Cause if my review says that it's garbage, uh, then I might not get the luxury of going to ride on a tank with Sylvester Stallone next week. It's sometimes a very difficult line to walk. Like I think yeah. almost all of us go into it, not wanting to just cape for people, even if maybe we sense a small conflict of interest or maybe we've always liked this or or in sports it happens a lot like almost every sports writer went to a university many of them are universities with big sports programs yes. so a lot of the argument among fans will be like this person shouldn't be covering texas a&m either because they went to texas a&m or because but they, they went, went to the university of texas yeah. the rival yes. yes and so if their coverage is not favorable it's because um if there are any Aggies listening, it's because they're what, what Texas A&M fans would call a T-SIP. You know, there's somebody who went to the University of Texas. <laughs> um, SIPs. SIPs is what they call them for short. Um, UT is the fancier school. Texas A&M is the agricultural school. And so that's kind of the basis of their rivalry, I guess. Um, saw it all the time. Or, you know, if someone says something negative about University of Kansas, where I went to school, there are a whole lot of sports writers who went to the University of Missouri, which was our biggest rival. And so we'd be like, well, that's, you know, we never get any fair coverage because everybody <laughs> at ESPN went to Mizzou. And the second half of that is kind of true, but the first half <laughs> is really not. Um, because we're all going into it trying to, to give like real good coverage. And, and what should be more important is looking at our unconscious biases. But I think in sports and entertainment, you see it 
even more and in politics you see it even more because the access um, is so important and if you say the wrong thing if you report the wrong thing you could lose your access to your sources you know and that gets you in trouble with your boss and these jobs are not easy to come by these days and so there's a, um, a, a kind of a real tricky line that I think on any beat all of us are, are kind of trying to stay on on the side of doing real journalists and being objective but it's not always the easiest thing because of just all of these other things these other factors that come into how the world works and how business works. Sarah, this has been an absolutely fascinating convo. I just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show. <laughs> I did, in so I did, many directions. I uh, hope some of them were interesting. No, I think, I think it is fascinating because it's really, first and foremost, it's extremely interesting to contextualize journalism of today and those quandaries. And secondly, it's great to, I think sports journalism is you know, I, I think for, for whatever status people might talk about it, you know, when it's, when it's amongst, you know, political journalism or otherwise it's like sports journalism is some of the most read journalism in the world. And personally, I read a lot of sports journalism because I'm, I like sports and, and, and just like there's a great crossover between sports and entertainment. So it's, it's fascinating to hear that you're dealing with the same quandaries and, and those same editorial decisions and, and having that consciousness. And also I think that there are definitely, you know, in, in at the beginning of this project, I probably had more of a, a fixed mindset around this being, this speaking a direct one-to-one dialogue with what was happening in the world today, this film, All the President's Men. Um, and I feel like now so much of what I maybe took for granted as, you know, being one-for-one one is now, it's it's now outmoded. It's different. And I think hearing the context around, you know, those challenges and access and, and teams and biases, I think is something that kind of has to be addressed because I think part of what the alchemy of this movie and the alchemy of the reporting is that these guys had different biases and they kind of kept each other in check. And even the people who made this movie, um, which mm-hmm. some people would be hearing had biases and kept each other in check. Um, so um, including the editor um, of all the president's men who was a Republican um, helping to make decisions in the, in the editing room. Uh, and I'm going to just uh, call him out right now. So it's Robert L. Wolf, who's also an editor for Sam Peckinpah, um, before he came into this movie, was, you know, a Republican and helping them make decisions and telling, you know, and, and sort of guiding Alan J. Pakula and, and his team around, you know, are we being too heavy-handed? Are we, are, you know, are we coming at this too hard from a progressive standpoint and too political um, instead of the objective, taking the adjectives away, if you were? Um, but, yeah, I think it's been a fascinating convo and uh, I've, I've loved every minute. So I just want to thank you so much for being a part of the show. Oh, this is so much fun. Thank you so much for having me on. That was my incredible guest, Sarah Kelly. You can find her at the Sarah Kelly, K-E-L-L-Y, not E-Y, on Twitter. Um, and you can also sign up to her Amateur Hour newsletter uh, where she's really getting a chance to write in the pandemic. Sarah, such a fascinating combo. Thank you so much for being a part of the show. Guys, thank you so much for listening to another episode of All the President's Minutes. We have a stacked lineup of incredible both journalistic and film minds and just incredible people that um, are giving up so much of their time to be a part of the show. So thank all of them in advance and I hope you guys are enjoying it as much as we are enjoying putting every episode out there. Thank you so much for following along to One Heat Minute and One Heat Minute Productions just in general. Right now, the two main ones that are dominating our feed are obviously All the President's Minutes and the incredible increment vice if you can do one thing for us we don't need your donations right now uh you know we know everyone's doing it tough so you know when we when 
we are all flush at the end of this pandemic, hopefully touching wood as I'm talking to you. Um, we'll take those donations then. If you can do one thing though, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. If you uh, have an Apple uh, uh, iPhone and you jump on the Apple Podcast app, we know that there's a stack of listeners out there. If you're enjoying the show every week and you haven't yet, please go and subscribe and uh, and jump on there and hit a review because they matter in the charts uh, and they matter with uh, the show sort of popping up in the featured episodes and things like that. So if you guys can do that for whatever show you're listening to, One Heat Minute, Last 12 Minutes of the Mohicans, Josie and the Podcats, Increment Vice, Miami Nice, or of course, All the President's Minutes, please jump on there. We'd really appreciate it. Thank you so much again for uh, being a part of this experience and reaching out. If you want to reach me at one Blake minute on Twitter or mail at oneheatminute.com for all of our shows. If you've got anything for increment advice too, I'm happy to pass it on at ATPM pod for this podcast. We'll catch you on another episode soon.